Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour, we'll discuss why more older couples are calling it quits. There has been a rise in senior or gray divorces. An attorney will join us. We'll hear how big money in Illinois politics is affecting the democratic process. Supply chain issues have proved disruptive to the economy. There's an effort in Illinois aimed at helping. Also, Illinois has moved to protect child influencers who earn money online. We'll look at new approaches to address student truancy and also talk with an Illinois student who was able to take part in the recent World Climate Convention. Those stories and more coming up on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. On the way, an effort to expand care farms throughout the United States. And we'll discuss why more older couples are calling it quits. That and more ahead this hour. There is a lot of money in Illinois politics. Politicians are weaponizing their war chests in ways that threaten the election process. In a recent piece for the Democracy Solutions Project, Chicago Sun-Times chief political reporter Tina Svandelis looked at campaign finance in the state and how big money is causing big problems for Illinois voters. She joins me now. So in your piece, you identify multiple issues that are affecting state elections, including self-funded candidates and legal loopholes. What's going on? Um, well, it's there's a lot of problems in Illinois. As you said, there's a lot of money, which leads to more problems. I do detail some of the issues, including meddling in primaries, which we saw last year with uh, Governor Pritzker in the Republican primary for governor. And that was him giving $24 million to the Democratic Governors Association so that they can run ads in the Republican primary. You, I'm sure you remember those because there were so many ads running in that campaign. But it was boosting Darren Bailey, um, saying that he was too conservative for Illinois. And what that does is that riles up Republican primary voters. They get they get really upset or they get really animated and they kind of do what the ad tells them to do. And in that case, Pritzker wanted to face Darren Bailey over the moderate candidate Richard Irvin. And that that strategy worked for him. Um, aren't there state laws that regulate how money is spent in political races? Yes. So I went down uh, the history books for Illinois. And in 2009, Governor Pat Quinn was the first person to, tr to try to get campaign finance reform on the books. And that was a year after former Governor Rob Blagojevich was arrested. And obviously that was tied to contr the, uh, campaign contributions. So in 2009, Governor Pat Quinn, he gets a reform commission together and he finally does get a law on the books. And in that case, there were contributions, uh, limits for uh, corporations and unions, for individual donors, and for political action committees. So back in 2009, um, this law would have put limits on PACs. As we know, that is not happening. Um, and that changed in 2011 because of the Supreme Court decision in which they said that super PACs could not have limits. So Illinois went back to the drawing board in 2011, and they allowed super PACs to have unlimited amounts of contributions, which is what we have seen ever since. And then there's the issue of self-funding loopholes, right? 
Yes. So that was originally in the 2009 bill. And I talked to Governor Pat Quinn. He says he did not intend this to help millionaires, but it does help millionaires in that anyone who can give $250,000 to their statewide campaign um, blows the caps, meaning they could put in limited, unlimited amounts into their campaign. And so that has been happening ever since. Obviously, we have had Bruce Rauner as a governor, Jamie Pritzker, for however long he wants to be governor. So we have been led by these really wealthy candidates who are making extraordinary amount of contributions to these campaigns. If we agree that this use of big money is a problem, is there a solution to it? I think there are multiple solutions. We are seeing them play out in several cities and states. Evanston last year became the first city in the state to enact a public financing program. So under that new program, candidates for mayor will be able to receive funding matched at a nine to one ratio. So that means that people can give up to $150 for each candidate and and then have that matched to a nine to one ratio by the public government. And that is a way for residents who do not have a lot of money to be able to play a role in big elections. Tina Svandelis is the chief political reporter at the Chicago Sun-Times. Thanks, Tina. Thank you. And this conversation is part of the Democracy Solutions Project. It's a collaborative effort with WBEZ, the Chicago Sun-Times, and the University of Chicago's Center for Effective Government. Together, we're examining critical issues facing our democracy in the run-up to the 2024 elections. When nearly 30,000 Illinois residents complied with a new state law requiring them to register assault-style weapons with the state by the end of the year. But as Mawa Iqbal reports, many gun owners did not comply. Illinois' assault weapons ban requires those who already owned high-powered guns like the AR-15 to register them with the state police before January 1st. As of midnight New Year's Eve, more than 29,000 people registered nearly 70,000 firearms. But according to the state police, there are almost 2.5 million licensed gun owners in the state. Gun rights advocates and Republican politicians vowed to ignore the law while 88 county sheriffs say they won't enforce it. Those who fail to register assault weapons and magazines could face misdemeanor charges on the first offense and a felony for a second offense. I'm Mawa Iqbal. There are growing concerns about the number of high school athletes hopping around between schools. That's according to the Illinois High School Association's executive director, Craig Anderson. He oversees eligibility rulings used for any transfers other than students moving with both parents. He told Cameron Cutinello that transfers aren't always for athletic reasons, but he has noticed an increase in recent years. Annually, we're doing probably 2,000 transfer eligibility rulings a year, and uh, that's up from probably pre-COVID, you know, just over 1,000, you know, 11 or 1,200. Um, so definitely seeing significant increases, uh, in particular, of transfer eligibility rulings, but that likely means also students uh, transferring schools for a variety of reasons. And why do you think there are more transfers? You know, some of it is uh, athletic. I, you know, I, I see some come to my desk that, you know, I think uh, there's some, there's an athletic motivation to it. Um, uh, many times not, um, you know, families are in unique situations um, that cause, you know, families to break up. And so students are going to live with one parent or another, or, you know, uh, parents aren't responsive to students' needs and they're going to live with an aunt and an uncle or grandma or grandpa and they're, you know, in a different location. And uh, there's all kinds of reasons of why students might be transferring 
we don't have a, a rule that would limit a student from choosing to transfer for athletic reasons specifically as long as they meet the transfer bylaw requirements that are currently in place. Based on what you've seen, is the ratio of athletic transfers or I guess believed athletic transfers versus moving, has that, you know, is it 50-50? Is there still more people, you know, just they just moved or is there more of people trying to transfer for athletic reasons? It's, it's hard for me to determine where that break is. Um, you know, when students transfer in conjunction with a move with both of their parents, you know, I don't always get those transfer eligibility ruling requests because schools, when they get a what we call a clean concurrence forming, meaning the sending school concurs with the transfer and both parents are, or the student is moving with both parents, that that's when they don't necessarily have to request an eligibility ruling from our office. So uh, most of what I'm seeing are those that uh, are a transfer without a move uh, or a transfer with moving just with one of the parents as opposed to both parents. And athletically motivated or not, we we asked the question, though I, you know, I'm cautious about how honestly, you know, the folks are responding to that question. Is this athletically motivated? Um, and so it, it's it's difficult to for me to kind of put a percentage or a number uh, on those types of transfers. And I guess, is there any responsibility of the coach of a sport in any of this? There is, yeah. When we when we uh, when either the player uh, transferring student or the sending school indicates that they believe there's some connection between the student and the coach where the school is going, uh, we do have a form called the transfer component from the receiving school coach that we ask them to indicate how they know the student, the history of their activities in that sport with the student, how they know about the student's participation in non-school sports or in sports prior to their transfer. Um, and that really is for the purposes of trying to determine if the student was recruited to come to the new school. Is there action that IHSA can take to crack down on transfers or that, you know, it's, it's being considered right now? Yeah, I think there are ways. Uh, I know some states have, uh, some associations have just moved to, and I'm, I'm speaking of other state associations like ours, um, have moved to just allowing all students one free transfer of schools during their high school years to have eligibility, and then really um, significantly cutting down on future eligibility if they go uh, to a third or a fourth school. And so, you know, that's a way to to recognize that students find themselves into situations that, you know, when they start high school to need to maybe get to another. Um, so, uh, but absolutely there's a, you know, there's ways that we could try to significantly limit, um, you know, one of those bylaws uh, that was proposed did that, especially on a second or third or however many after um, basically students that transferred after their first transfer were going to have no eligibility for a full year before they gained eligibility. So uh, if the membership wanted to, uh, they could absolutely create some language within the transfer bylaw that could really restrict student eligibility when they transfer. The IHSA Executive Director Craig Anderson talking about student-athlete transfers. 
If you scroll through Instagram or TikTok or YouTube, you'll probably come across a family or parenting vlog or two. It's officially summer, and that means it's about 100 degrees outside here in Tennessee. And chances are the kids are a big part of those videos. Here we go. You got it? Oh, come on up. Oh, it's getting deep. And you know, some of these videos, they earn money. Lots of money. Well, Illinois has a new law that's aimed at protecting the money that child influencers make or help their families make. It's the first legislation enacted in the U.S. that focuses on children performing on the Internet. And it comes in the middle of growing concerns about sharing children's lives online for massive audiences. We're talking with Fortessa Latifi. She's a writer for Teen Vogue who's covered child influencers and joins us now to talk about all of this. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. Okay, so just to make sure that everyone's on the same page here, what exactly is a child influencer? Like, I'm assuming we're not talking about just kids whose parents occasionally post funny pictures of them online or videos, right? No. So it is strange because there are so many different kinds of child influencers. You have kids who are featured in family vlogging channels on YouTube to toddlers who have millions of followers on TikTok. But to simplify it, a child influencer is basically any child whose online presence generates profit. Okay. And to turn to this particular law in Illinois, it started with one very highly motivated child, right? Can you tell us the story? Yeah, this actually started as a high school project, which <laughs> I thought was so cool. So I talked to the young woman, Shreya Nala Matthew, who is now 16. She was 15 when she had a project in school and she started looking into how there were no protections for child influencers. And at the end of the project, her teacher was like, well, maybe you should reach out to legislators. And she told me, I guess I'll just shoot my so she <laughs> reached out to her state senator who ended up introducing legislation based on the information that she gave him. It's pretty amazing. So what protections exactly does this new legislation in Illinois give child influencers? Sure. It entitles child influencers to a percentage of the earnings made from the content that they're featured in, and that money is then held in a trust until the child turns 18. Before this, there was no legislation addressing the earnings or labor of child influencers. And how enforceable do you think this will be? Like, what are the consequences if these things don't happen? The onus here is really on the parents. And what this law does is it gives children legislative ability to sue their parents if the money is not saved for them. Well, you have interviewed people who've grown up as child influencers. What did they tell you about their experiences or just their realizations over time as they were growing up about the impact of the publicity that their parents have given them? I think one of the fascinating things is how it changes the family dynamic. So one of my sources grew up on a family vlogging YouTube channel. All of the videos together have over a billion views. And she told me that her dad has said to her before, like, I am your dad, but I am also your boss. Wow. And at one point she said, you know, I don't want to do YouTube anymore. And her dad said, okay, well, that's fine. But Mom and I are going to have to go back to work and we're going to have to sell this new house. And, you know, it kind of like really flips the dynamic of like the parent and the child in a really strange way. So among some of the people that you talk to, how are they reacting to this new law? 
I mean, they're heartened by the law and what they hope it signals, which is really this movement toward reconsidering the role of children online and what privacy means. But for a lot of them, this law and any laws that may follow in its wake are really too late. One source told me nothing my parents can do now will take back the years of work I had to put in. Childhood cannot be redone. You know, you get one shot at it. Right. That is Teen Vogue reporter for Tessa Latifi talking to us about Illinois' new law aimed at protecting child influencers. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. The contributions and struggles of Galesburg's boxcar families are now formally recognized at the sites of the camps where they once lived. Jane Carlson has that story. Bravos, Cabrera, Cantu. Mexican immigrants were recruited to work for the railroad in Galesburg in the first half of the 20th century and their families lived in boxcars on railroad property. Now there are markers at the sites of the four boxcar camps in Galesburg recognizing what these families overcame and all they built in the railroad town. Ponce, Ramirez, the names of the families were read aloud at a dedication of the marker at the Santa Fe camp on West Berrien Street. I'm just proud to have lived long enough to see something like this happen. It's a long time in coming. I consider Galesburg my home, and it's always been my home, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm real happy. That's 86-year-old Juan Medina. He was born at the Davis camp on Southwest Street and lived there until he was 15. Sanchez, Sapien, Sierra. And he was among the boxcar families and descendants who gathered for the dedication. Silva, Valdez. The Hispanic Latino Student Association at Carl Sandburg College led efforts to recognize Galesburg's boxcar families. They worked with the city, the railroad, and the Hispanic Latino Resource Group of Galesburg to make the markers happen. I'm Jane Carlson. We've got more to come here on Statewide. Stay right here. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Care farms are a place for people to process their emotions by working on a farm. Those emotions include anxiety, depression, and grief. The concept has gained traction in Europe, but not so much in the U.S. Side Effects Public Media's Elizabeth Gabriel reports on a new national network that hopes to expand care farms in the U.S. Zeb was 10 years old when he watched his youngest brother, Giddy, die in a boating accident. He recalls how the trauma affected him later during a class trip. And we had the opportunity to go kayaking in the ocean, and that was something that I like really did not want to do because... It was just too close, I think, to what happened with Giddy for me. Zeev is 17 now. He's traveled every year since the accident from Los Angeles to a care farm near Sedona, Arizona. He plays with animals, drives a tractor, and does other farm tasks. The care farm also has counselors on site. Zeev says the farm allows him to process his grief and trauma and even get back in a kayak. I think it was something about just being there and being in that like space, safe space that uh, allowed me to do that, and I felt comfortable and happy doing that. At its core, care farming allows people to connect with nature. There are plenty of studies that suggest nature-based activities like gardening and farming, especially with other people, can provide emotional benefits, like a better mood and less anxiety. And while more research is needed to show the mental health benefits of care farms specifically, some studies do show these programs might help kids and adults with mental wellness. But the concept is more popular abroad than in the U.S. Take the Netherlands, for example. We have regional members that support farmers. We have a national academy. We have, you know, a knowledge bank online. 
That's Martin Fischer. He is the director of the National Federation of Care Farms in the Netherlands. The country has more than 1,300 farms, while the U.S. only has about 200. He says a national network helped care farmers expand across his country. That's because a network lets care farms share information and learn from one another. They had handbooks, and they had a quality certification program, and they had communication, and they had courses, and that was a tremendous help. That's not available, for instance, in the U.S. In the U.S., most people still have to figure that all for themselves out. The U.S. has a shortage of mental health providers, especially in rural areas. In fact, 60% of residents there have a hard time accessing mental health care. But one study suggests using already existing farmlands as a tool to support emotional wellness could be valuable. That's part of what Andrea Barnhart hopes to do. She started one of the first national networks in the U.S. It's called the Care Farming Network. A lot of farms in the United States do not know of the care farming terminology. Barnhart says some people don't know their businesses qualify as a care farm until she reaches out to them. And so, while they're doing that work, they don't consider themselves a care farm. We're kind of like giving them that definition. The care farming network in the U.S. plans to unveil a mentorship program next year to support new care farms in the Northeast. The organization hopes this will be a step forward to expand the program across the country. Elizabeth Gabriel, Side Effects Public Media. A judge has shut down a troubled juvenile detention center in southern Illinois that had been the subject of lawsuits and poor reviews by state auditors. The Franklin County Juvenile Detention Center was featured in a November report by Capital News Illinois and ProPublica that exposed the state's lax enforcement of its own standards, despite audits that repeatedly found poor conditions at the facility. Those standards were updated by the Illinois Department of Juvenile Justice in 2021. The changes aim to improve education and mental health services for detained youths and to limit the use of restraints and seclusion. But in an inspection the following year, the agency described the youth lockup in Benton as a facility in crisis. In a statement, Judge Melissa Morgan said workforce shortages made it difficult to meet the new state standards. The 32-bed facility had housed youth awaiting court hearings in the bottom quarter of the state. It closed December 31st. Youth that have been housed there have been sent to other facilities. More than one in five students in Illinois were chronically truant last year. That means they missed over five percent of the year without a valid excuse. Peter Medlin has more on how schools are moving away from a punitive truancy system and trying to find out the root causes instead. It's illegal for Illinois school districts to refer students to local law enforcement to be punished with a fine for truancy. The law changed back in 2019, but not every school stopped. Last year, an investigation from ProPublica and the Chicago Tribune found that Illinois schools have still issued over a thousand truancy tickets since, and in a few northern Illinois districts, police have issued dozens of truancy tickets worth hundreds of dollars. In Mendota, students have paid hundred-dollar truancy tickets as recently as this May, nearly four and a half years after the state prohibited the practice. Mendota police have written students 45 truancy tickets since 2019, according to public records obtained by WNIJ. Denise Onbau is the superintendent at the Mendota Township High School District. 
I agree with the full intent of it that it is not in the best interest of a student to have additional fines and fees laid uh -huh. upon them, uh, you know, especially from a school district. She says because they have a school resource officer working in the building, they're not technically referring students to law enforcement. Allenbaugh says their resource officer is part of their truancy review meetings and might issue tickets on their own, but she says they're making a concerted effort to stop. This past year, fewer than 10 tickets were issued, and she hopes to make it zero this year. Police and Streeter issued 25 truancy tickets in the 2021-22 school year, but cut it to zero last year. Bo Doty is the assistant principal at Streeter Township High School, and despite the fines, he says the truancy system has become much less punitive. When I first started in this position, you had judges that would actually put kids in detention home because of truancy. Now school districts are required to exhaust as many interventions as possible to help truant students before there's any punitive action like suspension, expulsion, or court referral. In Streeter, they've hired a full-time truancy mentor to help facilitate those interventions. Her name is Sarah Price, and every day she scans attendance reports to see who made it to school. And once a student reaches a certain number of absences, her role kicks in. She sends letters home, visits families, and she says they also have a weekly truancy intervention group to try to get students back on track. And for those who fall far behind because of truancy, the school also has an alternative program housed inside the high school. It's a separate classroom with their own teacher who helps guide them through online credit recovery. 10 or 12 kids graduate last year that probably wouldn't have graduated if they weren't in our program. Samantha Holm is the Director of Student Services for the Regional Office of Education covering 29 school districts across LaSalle, Marshall, and Putnam counties. And part of their work involves truancy. And Holm started as a truancy officer, and she says they act as a mediator between school districts and families. School districts will make a referral to our office. We have the discretion to either take the re referral or kick it back and say this doesn't meet criteria for truancy. Last year, Holm officially served 120 truant students on her own, and she started her days stopping at houses and waiting with kids at their bus stop to make sure they got to school. We reach out to families, try to get to the bottom of what that issue is. Is it mental health challenges? Is it bullying? Is there poverty? A lot of the families that are referred for truancy live at or below the poverty line. They can request parent-teacher conferences, refer out to school social workers or the Youth Service Bureau for counseling. Hallman Price both say there's a youth mental health crisis. And the regional office also helps with other issues, too. They drop off gas cards for families experiencing transportation challenges that can cause truancy. Holmes says it's been a major shift to discourage schools from sending students to get fined or referred to the state's attorney's office to juvenile court. Punishment doesn't work, and we need to find some practical solutions and do what we can to help as much as possible. The youth mental health crisis and academic struggles stemming from the pandemic aren't going away anytime soon. But Holmes says there's plenty that school districts can do to help truant students and their families. They can show students the cost of missing out on school and not just the cost of a fine. I'm Peter Medlin. Supply chain problems persist for manufacturers big and small. The Illinois Manufacturing Excellence Center aims to help. The center is based at Bradley University and looks to connect manufacturers with suppliers and strengthen supply chains by helping makers onshore their processes. Tim Shelley talked with the center president, David Boulay, to learn more. We have learned a lot about supply chains uh, through the pandemic and even through today. 
the extended global supply chains and where things are produced and where they come from felt the real strains during the pandemic. And as we've learned from that, we are starting to see supply chains reshape and refocus on the way that we make things in the United States. And part of this is a question of economic security. In other words, how are we making sure we have the product on the shelves and the things that we want uh, for a well-functioning society? Relatedly, uh, there is a question about national security, our ability to produce our products for the defense of our country. This supply chain center is born out of the CHIPS Act, which is the one of the uh, recent federal legislations around, uh, we think of mainly semiconductors with the CHIPS Act, but there is so much more in around supply chains. And this supply chain center comes with some funding from U.S. Department of Commerce, a program called the Manufacturing Extension Partnership, and that this funding is to help the manufacturers reshore, local source, reshape the supply chains by providing the technical assistance for scouting, matchmaking, qualifying suppliers so that we can see more domestically made manufacturing here in, in the United States, but certainly in Illinois and central Illinois, rooting for the home team every time. So, so how do we do that? Let's say, because I know the focus here is on uh, not necessarily the really large manufacturers, but some of the maybe mid-sized and smaller manufacturers. If, if one of these manufacturers is saying we really need, um, let's say, item X, really generic, to, to make our product, and we're having trouble getting item X, and they come to you and they say, how can you help us you know, obtain this so that we can make what we're trying to make. How, where do you fit into that equation? Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic question and we are learning as we go. So we just launched the Supply Chain Center just a couple of weeks ago and the demand has been amazing, the, the attention on this. And I'll, I'll just give you a couple of brief examples so that'll give you a sense of how, how it works. There's, there's the example like you referenced, there's product X. I wanna be able to make something that looks, you know, certain dimensions uh, made out of carbon fiber help me find the supplier. So it's very specific. It is our ability to leverage databases, leverage our market intelligence to help find and identify and make the, the introductions to those suppliers. We've had other companies say, effectively, I wanna take my whole supply chain and I wanna get it within a three hour radius of my facility. Currently, I am global, right? And so that's a very different set of questions. That's a very different set of matchmaking and planning and figuring out the, the total cost structure of, of how that supply work does. We are also equipped to do that work. That is a little more in depth than, as you might imagine, helping identify the one supplier for, for part X, but that's the range of the type of requests that we're seeing. And I'd also note the range in the size of companies that we are, the large companies, of course, are looking at the smaller manufacturers, which are their supply chains, and saying, how can I local source more of the product that, that we need? And we're also seeing the smaller manufacturers to say either, can I partner up with another small manufacturer to be a good supplier for a larger manufacturer, or I would like to find another uh, partner, or I'm sorry, supplier to help me with, with the product that I make. How does this help them in terms of costs? You mentioned the people looking perhaps to localize their supply chain. Does this help them, uh, you know, the cost of importing things, uh, finding more local suppliers? How, how does this help them in their business? 
Yeah, and I think this is a, a, a fantastic question that we're going to see a, a reshaping of manufacturing. And really, I think the next eight or 10 years for, for a lot of reasons. We can talk about automation. We can talk about workforce. Today, we talk about supply chain. The tradition has been go to the low cost production location globally, wherever that takes the supply chain. And now we're saying we want a local source to be more resilient, to make sure that we can have that economic security of products being available for the economy, for the national security that we can produce the products that we need for our defense. And so that's a question about resiliency. It's a question about ensuring uh, success of the supply chain. And there's a different cost structure that we need to, to look at and understand. There's going to be a lot to unpack in that. There's going to be a lot to unpack around productivity, how we invest in automation, how we invest in the skills of the workforce to ensure that the costs can be cost competitive in a total cost model compared to wherever it might be uh, traditionally imported from. And ultimately, it sounds like what businesses are really looking for is, is stability, really. They're looking for stability. They're looking for reliability. The, having uncertainty is, is probably one of the worst words in business, right? Uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is going to help some eliminate or alleviate some of that. Yeah, you, you're spot on. Uh, when we think about, you know, again, the pandemic as the uh, example of tremendous uncertainty. And now we're seeing... Uh, shifts in geopolitics. We're seeing shifts in the way um, supply chains are constructed. Let's take automotive from internal combustion to electric. There is so much change, and therefore change means uncertainty, that there is certainly a desire to think through how to ensure uh, businesses can convert uncertainty into certainty. And no doubt about it, the supply chain, the supply chain of the United States, the supply chain of Illinois, central Illinois, is such a powerhouse that there, there are many of the solutions here, and the supply chain center is all about creating that mechanism or mechanisms, the market intelligence, the, the technical assistance to ensure that that, uh, that change can take place and create more certainty in our supply base. So if somebody's listening to this interview and they say, you know, this, this would be really helpful for my business, uh, do they get in contact with IMEC? How, how do they get started here? Yeah, IMEC.org, right on our, our front page, we have the Supply Chain Center. You can click on it. And there's really three, three different features to that. The first one is I'm looking for a supplier. And there's a pretty straightforward uh, initial form to fill out, and that starts the conversation. The other part of this, which we didn't really touch on, is every supply need is also a growth opportunity for another manufacturer. So there's an opportunity to uh, request uh, being made aware of opportunities so that the manufacturer can grow their business. So there's, I need a supplier, I'm looking for business opportunities. And then we have another uh, link or pathway for uh, partners, economic development community, to be able to turn to and, and say, help us map our supply chain, help us think through what's, what's going on here that we can th local source. So on that website, there's three different paths. Those are very straightforward, and they really are the uh, initial conversation, or they initiate the conversation uh, that uh, gets the good work going. That's David Boulay, president of the Illinois Manufacturing Excellence Center based at Bradley University in Peoria. got more to come on statewide. We'll talk about divorce among older couples. That's on the way.
This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. The Chicago-area divorce attorney Rayford Dalton Palmer is author of the bestseller, I Just Want This Done, and a similarly named podcast about dating and divorce. He spoke with Maureen McKinney about trends in marriage splits, including a growing number of gray or senior divorces. It's a significant issue, uh, definitely these days demographically, and a, a trend in terms of divorce filings. And the folks that seek us out as clients, we see an increasing trend in our divorce firm. And we want to make sure we're addressing the concerns of those people who I think have traditionally been underserved and underinformed that the traditional divorce lawyer market or business is aiming at people 35 to 45 years old. There are a lot of people out there getting divorced in their late 50s and 60s and older who have somewhat different concerns and issues, and that isn't being addressed very well. Why not? It's somewhat new, and divorce lawyers aren't really paying much attention to that trend. People, I don't think, have catered to that group in terms of providing them with information and resources, maybe more appropriate for their position in life. For example, division of assets, alimony, you know, the circumstances, situation changes when people are either already retired or close to retirement. The math is different from people that have, for example, young children, don't have a lot of retirement put away yet, et cetera. Why do you think the numbers are on the upswing? People are living long enough to and healthy long enough to see that maybe they want something else in their lives, that their relationship is no longer meeting their needs. And in the past, when people would die in their 60s, they weren't in a position where they thought a divorce was possible. They thought, well, I'll just stick with this because, frankly, it's not worth the expense and grief and effort. But now people are thinking, well, I might live to be 85 or older and I'll be healthy longer. So people are looking inward and they're deciding maybe for this next chapter of my life, I need something different. And they think they have time and that it's okay to pay the expense necessary. They've made that cost benefit analysis before. If your friends are all dying in their 60s, you figure, you know, why am I worrying about getting divorced at this point? And that is a radical change. It's only occurred in the last few decades. What is different for those who are in the senior years as opposed to a more traditional divorce age? They have concerns that are a little different. So usually we're not dealing with children. We're dealing we have adult children. We have grandchildren that we're dealing with. We've got people concerned about now that either one or both people are retired. So the way that they're looking at asset division is very different. And concerns about alimony are different because of the way our law works. So for example, a reasonable retirement age for somebody in Illinois law is somewhere between 63, 64, and 67. I've done divorces where people are working, but they're older than that. So let's assume there's an there's been a long-term marriage, 35, 40-year marriage, and somebody's working, making good income, and there's an order for maintenance or what we call alimony in other states. Well, the person receiving that thinks, great, this person legally could retire tomorrow and there's nothing I can do to stop it. So a maintenance award that might've looked good to somebody who's 35 or 40 years old uh, looks pretty sketchy to somebody who's 75 years old and their husband or wife could retire at any moment. 
which changes the equation when you're looking at how to resolve a case. What is the kind of advice you would give someone who is in a relationship that's ending and is near retirement? So much depends on the circumstances. So I would, there are a couple ways to look at it. <laughs> if you're the person who might be paying maintenance and you can afford to retire, meaning you've got enough assets and you figure you don't need to work full-time, then technically or theoretically it behooves you to retire before a divorce because then it's a fait accompli and it's done and you won't be paying any maintenance if you're actually retired. I think people should, if they enjoy working, keep working. You know, this there's a little too much emphasis, I think sometimes on divorce planning, people tying themselves in knots in their lives to try to get an edge on their divorce when let's assume you're paying support and it's something under a third of net income, which is how the formula works in Illinois. Wouldn't you rather make two thirds of your net income and have that money at your disposal to invest in stuff rather than not making any? So that's something I talk to people who are normally going to be paying maintenance. They'll say, well, I, you know, I want to quit my job so I don't have to pay maintenance. Well, you're kind of cutting off your nose to spite your face. So it's so important about to decide what your priorities are. But if your plan was to retire anyway, then there's no reason to wait. That would be my suggestion on that issue. Because if you're not retired, that's the status quo from the court's perspective and the lawyer on the other side, the lawyer for the soon to be X, their perspective is, well, you're working, so you need to pay maintenance. <laughs> Despite the fact the person says, I plan to retire next month or in three months or six months or a year, They'll say, fine, then do that then, and we'll discuss it at that point. If you're a person who is the, the person making less income, I would urge that person to get some type of job that has health insurance because health insurance is expensive. And after you get divorced, there's no guarantee your spouse will stay working. They can retire at any time. And that means support might be terminated. Your maintenance gets terminated, and that's what was paying for your health insurance. And now you're burning through your retirement assets to pay for basic expenses. And that's not a good thing. So because assume we're getting divorced at 65 or 60 to 75 years old, we've got a lot of life left to live and expenses to pay. So it's a quality of life issue. And you don't have to work very hard to get a job that pays for health insurance. There are part-time employment at major companies, part-time jobs where they'll provide health insurance. And that's just gold these days either keep working to maintain your health insurance and, and have something to do. You don't have to kill yourself, but keep working and generate that income because it doesn't reduce maintenance very much. And it provides a safety cushion in the event your soon to be ex retires, gets ill, gets let go. And there are a lot of things beyond that person's control. A court order that says they're supposed to pay maintenance is just a piece of paper. What is the most common age or situation for people to split? You have what you kind of call the starter marriages. These are people married between three, five years, and things just don't work out. They they might have a young child or they have no kids and they get divorced. There's the folks that are in the middle area we see probably the most of, and these are people who've been married 15, 20 years. They have a couple kids usually a kid in high school and maybe in grade school or somebody in college and somebody in high school. And uh, they're in their forties, something like that, somewhere between 35 and, and 50 years old. And then the third group are the 
the I guess you'd say the gray divorce people, but that's a pretty wide range these days. I've seen people anywhere from let's say 60 in their 60s to in their 70s. And the usual hallmarks of that are the children are fully launched. Everybody has time to focus inward again. The nest is truly empty. And one of the two people says to themselves, is this all there is? And they see a lot of life left ahead of them. Uh, now the kids are gone, they're grown, and they finally have come to the point where their cost-benefit analysis tips toward they're deciding that the divorce is worth the gamble. Is there a scenario where it is more difficult to reach an agreement if people have similar incomes? It tends to be more difficult if one person isn't working and they're looking to receive support. If they're if they're close in incomes, it's a lot easier because there's there's no alimony and it's just a division of assets and debt situation. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's definitely less complex. If the if both people are working, they're less concerned about their own financial situations because they're paying the bills with their own incomes and they've got health insurance. So those cases tend to be easier. The trickier ones are ones where one person is not working or maybe they have medical challenges and can't earn an income or it's a very small income relative to the other party. Because I like that issue I raised before where it's one thing if the person was going to work another 20 years or spousal support court order that says they're going to pay you indefinitely, which is what, if you've been married over 20 years in Illinois, that's what the court orders, uh, assuming the income is there. If somebody's looking at being supported for another 20 years, they're they're not concerned. But in, the, in a situation of a, a gray divorce where somebody's retired or unable to work or only able to earn a small income, they're very worried that even if they get that maintenance order, the person could die, get sick, get fired, or quit. And and they and the court will allow them to quit it after they're 65-ish years old and they can terminate maintenance then. So that leaves them burning through assets. And a lot of folks. You know, in our market, more people have, you know, substantial assets, but broadly, a lot of people, a lot of people in the baby boom generation have not saved or they haven't saved what they really need for retirement. You know, any wealth manager will tell you that. And that leaves people in a precarious position, you know, relying on Medicare, Social Security and things of that nature. Chicago area divorce attorney Rayford Dalton Palmer, and he spoke with Maureen McKinney. The application for federal and state grants and loans to attend college is now open after a month's-long delay. But the FAFSA, as it's commonly known, is only intermittently available. Lisa Corian-Phillip reports. Sarah Yelich-Miller guides students from low-income families through the college application process. She says many are chomping at the bit to complete the FAFSA. I've had to temper those expectations knowing that, like, I tried to get Taylor Swift tickets, right? We all know what a website does when everyone and their brother wants to get on it at the exact same time. Like, just don't do it immediately. Yelich Miller says Illinois students who are eligible will still receive state aid, even if they apply later in the month. Lisa Corey and Philip with that story. The Conference of Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, known worldwide as COP, is where the world's big climate deals happen. It was in Dubai last month. 
Six Chicago-area high school students got the chance to take part in that historic conference and watch world leaders tackle the issue of climate change. Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco sat down with one of them and has this story. Danica's son just finished finals, one in linear calculus, another in political theory. It's just been a constant, like, nonstop of cop, school, okay, finals, now back home, and now I'm finally going to get to catch up on some sleep. Son is a senior at the Illinois Math and Science Academy in Aurora. And on top of finals, she was one of 70,000 people at the COP UN Climate Summit. Going in, I wasn't sure how big my role would be at COP28, but then once I was there, I realized I can chase after these opportunities to use my voice and to speak up. The first COP took place in 1995. Since then, the world now agrees that burning more fossil fuels will mean more climate disasters. That's why diplomats from nearly 200 countries attended with this goal, to chart the course of the world's transition away from fossil fuels. That's also why Danica was there. And I got into these meetings with decision makers and I realized, oh, I'm here in this room where many people are not. So I really have to step it up. I have to make sure I advocate well and clearly for my generation. But there were moments she wasn't so sure. It's like, oh, was this youth washing, which is where people meet with youth just to say, oh, we included youth, but they don't actually take our words to heart? Or will they actually take action and listen to our words? Even so, she tells me she was psyched to be there. This was the year that delegates approved the global stock take. Think of it as a worldwide gut check of how countries are progressing towards climate goals. And then what has to come next? It was historic to have language on fossil fuels in the global stock take. It's something that has never happened before at a COP. But it was disappointing because it's not what we wanted. It's not what's needed to ensure my generation has a safe future to grow old in. In the end, leaders went with pared down language. They chose to transition away from fossil fuels instead of phasing them out, leaving some wiggle room for the dirty fuels. A big disappointment for Sun. This was also the year that the Loss and Damages Fund came online. This is a major pot of money that countries already suffering from the impacts of climate change can turn to for relief. Sun wishes she could be happier about it. So it was really disappointing to see my country, the country that I'm representing, APCOT 28, take such an ins insignificant position in the fund and to not be stepping up to the extent that we should be. Of the world's largest economies, the U.S. contributed the least amount of money, just over $17 million. That's compared to $245 million from the EU and $100 million from Germany. It's important to celebrate these successes and acknowledge that progress was made, but it is not enough, and I think it's important that the public knows it is not enough. Sitting in her family's living room today, Sun says she left Dubai somewhat disappointed. But that's not new. That's part of what keeps her going. But for now, she can finally relax. It's been a long month, and she wants to catch up on some of that sleep and ace those finals. Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco, WBEZ News. This reporting made possible through a partnership between WBEZ and Grist, a nonprofit independent media organization dedicated to telling stories of climate solutions and a just future. That's all the time we have for Statewide. Thanks for being along with us. Join us again next week. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find us where you get your podcasts, through the NPR app, and through the station's website. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois, with help from other Illinois public radio stations.